0: Namotasa Bhagavatu Arahatu Sama Sambudasa Namotasa Arahatu Sama Sambhuta Sam Bhutam Dhamma Sangamasama Someone asked the question, how do you work with the tendency to strive for a particular mind state? Or a result. I'd like you to consider what it's like when you cook a meal or grow a plant. You plant a tree and you want it to grow. What do you do in these situations? Or if you're a computer person, you want to make a program. I don't know if that's such a good analogy. But to cook, or to garden, to be a woodworker, a carpenter, then you apply a particular skill that you have, and there are ingredients that you must know how to add into your work. For example, with gardening, you find a little sapling, and you find a good spot where you know it might grow. So there you place it, you dig a hole, and you put in some good soil, maybe some mulch, some fertilizer, and you plant it well, and you firm up the soil around it. And then what do you do? You water it. If there's a big wind, you put up a little stake and protect it. In an ice storm, maybe you cover it. If you live in the northern regions. And what do you do When it gets bigger, you leave it alone. You watch, and it grows. It develops branches. Eventually it gives fruit, leaves. Creatures come and sit on the branches or take refuge in the trunk of the tree. And it becomes a home for many beings. And then eventually it loses its leaves, It dries up, decays, and dies after seasons and seasons. This is an analogy for our life, really. But in terms of the tendency to strive, in the beginning, when we're starting the path and we don't really know how to work with mental process, physical process, we have to apply certain ingredients quite... Precisely, strategically, we develop mindfulness, we develop our faith in the Buddha's enlightenment, we develop a sense of moral shame and moral dread, so we learn the value of keeping precepts. We develop investigation of the mind, and we see the results of working with anger, with greed, with exhaustion, with anxiety, with doubt, the five hindrances. We develop tactical strategies. And then when the mind begins to get a little bit cooled, we water that. We sit in a place where the conditions are suitable, where we have like-minded company, where this practice is encouraged. And conditions are conducive to our growth in the practice, to our ability to apply these ingredients so that our minds can settle and become more and more focused and still, rather than distracted with worldly activities and other people pulling on us, pressuring us, including our responsibilities as parents, as children, taking care of our parents as siblings, as colleagues, as teachers, as students. If we have to study for exams, it might be more difficult to just let go of that whole agenda and focus the mind, focus in on the breath, and work towards freeing ourselves from the mental habits of lifetimes, if not just one lifetime, many. When the mind begins to taste its true home, then we have to coax gently, just set the boundary, protect, protect the process. We have to let go that striving, we have to let go that wish to control, intervene, manage, organize, prod. It's a bit like athletes nowadays who take drugs to succeed as athletes. And that's very enticing. You want to win a race, so they cheat to win. But in this practice, there's no winning. We're letting go the whole game of competitiveness. What we're seeking is not a place or a condition We're going to the unconditioned, to that which is beyond conditions. It's measureless. It's boundless. It's unnameable. It's sublime. It's not movable. It's permanent. It's beyond the ways of the world. So the ways of the world do not work in this practice. Instead of moving and doing and acting and enacting and always managing our practice, we have to let go in ways that we haven't been trained by the world because our training is to rush ahead, to compete, to succeed. But the success here is really to abandon all of that in favor of the purity of mind and heart, which leads us to... Complete emptiness. We have to learn to abandon everything. We have to learn the state of abandonment. But at the same time, we have to take care not to abandon what supports that state. And we do that intuitively by seeing the results of the purification and the peace that grows in the mind and giving ourselves to that devoting ourselves to it. It's a different kind of vote. It's devote. Instead of going out and voting for someone, we're voting for nothing. So it's a devotion. But that's a complete surrender. Instead of getting something, we're getting nothing. And in that nothingness, we realize what we are looking for is the looking itself. It's a way of seeing. It's a way of understanding. It's a rarefied wisdom. So there isn't anything to strive for. But there are certain skills to be learned. And they're difficult skills to learn in a world that prides itself on skills which have something to show for themselves, something that is tangible, measurable, identifiable. And then there's a self with which we can prop all that up. But this is a path of selflessness. This is a practice of breaking it all down. It's a breakdown. That's not the name of a dance. But it is kind of a dance. It's A dance with nothingness. We have never been trained, there is no course offered in any institute, except, of course, in meditation centers like this that teaches us how to do this. We have to go against the grain of the world. As monastics, we do it in a more extreme way. We shave our heads, and we wear awkward kind of clothes. You try getting into this. (laughs) This is what the Buddha wore. So every day when I get up in the morning and I pick up my robes, I feel like I'm emulating my teacher. My teacher is not going to save me, but he is teaching me how to save, I'll say myself, but how to realize the selflessness. It's a very different attitude. So to give up, give up what the world is telling us to go for. And we've learned this from young, young age. It's really hard to unlearn those habits. But when the mind begins the practice and sees a little bit, has a glimpse, like if you open those doors in front of this hallway of the temple, There's a cloister there. It's protected on all sides. And when we have a glimpse into the deepest interior of the heart, then we know that that's the center, the center point where we need to reside, abide, (laughs) enter into, give up into, protected from all sides and protected by the process itself of purification. There's no one standing there with a shield and a sword preventing intruders. But what prevents intruders is the strength that we develop within us, a strength that is a moral power, and it's a wisdom, it's a measureless Boundless, compassionate understanding. equanimous. So we know that it exists and we move incrementally towards it the way a tree grows up from the soil and reaches for the sky. No one can make that happen. But we can add to the conditions that promote the growth that promote its upward movement and we can't order it to grow. I want a tree by next year. We planted 580 trees when we arrived at the hermitage. We wanted a forest (laughs) on all sides. We wanted protection from the world. And then We had two years of drought. We were left with 10% of those trees. And during this year of drought, they're all, we don't know, the forest is in very bad shape. But what we are growing in is the faith in the Dhamma. We're growing the forest within us that is made up of these moral qualities, and they are timeless, they're deathless. Even if this body dries up, those moral qualities do not die. So we learn to go beyond that which dies. That's not the body, and it's not a particular mind state either. If we take refuge in particular mind states, we're still trying to win some kind of a game or race. We're trying to identify as a brilliant meditator who can get this state and that state. And then we're stuck with that identity. So that tendency might be there, but we have to be very careful how we strive and how to let go within that right effort, the right effort that knows how to protect the mind from the unwholesome and how to grow what is wholesome in the mind, in the heart. If we just do that, developing virtue, letting the mind become more and more peaceful and settled so that it abandons the world completely and knows its own home, deep within itself, unconcerned about gaining anything at all, just going into the depths of the flower, like the bee with its proboscis, diving into the flower and pulling up the nectar, We don't have any thoughts about honey or hives. We just become one with the nectar. That's enough. And even that becoming, it's not quite the right flavor. It's not becoming anything. It's just the seeing and the knowing is enough. And even that will cease into the nothingness. So these are difficult things to conceptualize, but intuitively we will know, we will taste. It's like if somebody wants to describe the taste of a mango or an apple. They could talk for a long time and we we still wouldn't know until we bite into it and viscerally know it. It's a very individual experience. That's why the Buddha's instruction is, this practice is directly visible, directly knowable here and now, to be experienced individually by the wise. Each of us, in our own way, will experience that. As long as we keep practicing